In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 405 over the past year immersive creator jessica crean has become one of my favorite people to talk shop with the creator of chaos theory and the co-creator with unique trapman o'brien of fair trade her new work tea party at the end of the world will debut in the philadelphia fringe next month in this episode of No Pro, we talk about how that show is coming together, tackling themes like grief, and just what immersive experiences excel at on the interpersonal level. Check the show notes for links to the new show and her portfolio at I Can't Co On. There you'll also find, well, at the show notes, you'll also find links to all our coverage this week, including new editions of the Review Rundown and Everything Immersive this week, the sign-up for the NoPro newsletter, and August's call sheet. None of this is possible without our Patreon backers, and this week we've got two new backers, Tracy Arthur and Bert, who have put us just three backers away from our next milestone of 425 active supporters. If you rely on what we do, hit up patreon.com slash It not only powers the podcast and websites for NoPro and everything immersive, it also gets you into our member-only Discord. You'll find a whole community of creators and fans there. Backers can link their Patreon accounts to get access. If you're already a backer, help us spread the word. So many of you do, but a lot of you don't. And drop a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. And share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice, like Everything Immersive This Week. It helps immensely. We are always no proscenium, except on Insta and on threads, where we are no underscore proscenium. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Cameo Wood, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Kurt Collins, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Lecker LeCool, The Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. We're also on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers. Hit me up at noah at noprosinium.com for details. And now, on with the show. Joining us now is Jessica Crean of I Can't Co On, who made her mark on the East Coast immersive scene with her solo piece, Chaos Theory, and has one of the most interesting artistic careers I've charted, from artist in residence at the edge of the world to teaching game design at Drexel University. Her new piece, Tea Party at the End of the World, is part of the Philadelphia Fringe and is coming up starting September 3rd. Jessica, it's great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Noah. It is such a joy to be here. Now, 
last time we had you on, it was because you were part of our crew on the Galactic Star Cruiser and a bunch of people have listened to that episode. Uh, but you at the time, what I think people didn't know is you were off on another adventure when you talked to you then. I think we were talking to you in uh, Alaska. You're always like my my experience of you is mostly airports and you being in them and getting stuck in them and traveling or being on virtual uh conveyances right like either on an imaginary ship or on a real ship all the time what what were you up to where were you going you know a friend of mine recently said if i want someone to come home with me i'll take them on a trip and I feel like that resonated so strongly with me. I am I am a person who's very at home when when moving and moving throughout the world. So yeah, I, I do tend to do a lot of it. And there's so much of it to see. And I live in Philadelphia. And you know what Philadelphia doesn't have a lot of? Vistas. Mm. Mm. There's just a different kind of awe that I think comes from being able to see the world uh, and see see nature. And of course, there's no nature. There's not a lot of nature and immersive experience overlap, not none. Uh, but they all sort of satisfy different parts of myself. So I was out in Alaska with my mom. My mom and I try to travel together once a year. And uh, and I was on my way to uh, a conference in Portland. And so we sort of we sort of dovetailed these trips to, to be able to spend some time together and then head to Portland where I was giving a talk and doing a couple of play tests about uh, the intersection between games and eco-grief and climate change. Um, and so the first of these was just to talk about those things. And it's for um, a book that I've contributed to. And so I wrote a chapter on on games and and eco grief, essentially, and what it is to feel like the world is ending and to feel all of this sadness and to actually be able to play through that experience and and, and turn to the unknown with a state of of possibility that feels uplifting rather than just being totally decimated by the fact that we live in a changing world. So it's all about how we process change. Uh, and then I play tested this piece, Tea Party at the End of the World, a couple of times. I sort of wrote to the programmers who've been planning this conference for two years and asked them if they wanted a little additional content in May. <laughs> and magically they said yes. And so we ended up getting to run the piece twice for a bunch of uh, academics and game educators and game justice educators, sorry, um, environmental educators and environmental justice educators at this conference. And that was magical and wildly beautiful and useful feedback um, to be able to run that piece with folks who are not used to immersive experiences, who crave it and who immediately had this reaction of, we need more of this. Mm. We need this in this space. Why isn't there more of this in this space? Which has been 100% of my experience of showing this kind of work to academics is that they are, they are hungering for it because it is so hard to learn um, and to engage with difficult material. You've been developing this piece for a while now, and, and I think you, you touched on some of the, the themes that I'm divining from the description of the piece, but let's, let's lay out what is Tea Party at the End of the World, and then I'd love to, to dive into some of these themes of, of eco-grief and, and everything else. Yeah. Uh, Tea Party at the End of the World is an immersive and interactive experience. It is, uh, it's based on a handful of things. It is this, this kind of wild hodgepodge um, of threads at the moment because the piece opens on September 3rd. So why would it be done right now? Um, and the, the piece really contends with these questions of what is it to, to watch the world end? What is it to witness the world end? What is it to be a participant or even a party goer at the end of a world? And so I think the piece asks kind of big questions about how often our world is ending, 
whether or not we actually have some expertise in this space for the number of world endings that we experience over the course of our, our days and our lives, uh, and what it means to look at that at scale. What does it mean to experience the end of the world in a moment versus the end of the world because humans are decimating it? And so there's there's a real darkness that it that comes in talking about what the piece is about, which is very different than the experience of being a participant in the piece. It's not that there's no darkness, there's darkness. But for a tea party at the end of the world, you as a participant have been invited to a tea party. And your hostess, who's me, uh, is, I would say, a little intense and a little inept uh, and is, in, in that sense, I think, just an incredible guide because we, we are all a little intense and a little inept when it comes to, to world's ending. And so we have found her to be a really excellent conduit um, to be able to guide participants through what is definitely the strangest tea party I have ever I'm I'm picking up and and, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna treat this almost somewhere between like a wine tasting and a seance. Like I'm I'm picking up a vibration notes of of both personal world ending and and on on the macro and and how these things interrelate. Am I am I Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm picking up what you're laying down. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and this comes out pretty early in the piece. We really talk about these these different scales from the beginning. Um, I didn't think I was going to talk about personal grief in the same way that I'm talking about it when I first started making the piece. I was an artist in residence up in the Arctic Circle last fall, and always, always the goal was to make work from that experience. Uh, and I didn't know what it was going to be. And then we got up there, and I spent three weeks on a boat in, in and around Svalbard, which is very far up north above Norway um, in the Arctic Circle. And, and I had all these expectations coming into that experience, like, I will be so sad. I'm about to watch Glacier's Cabin to the Sea every single day. This is going to be devastating. I'm going to feel lonely. I'm going to feel the apocalypse. And is so often the case, the apocalypse doesn't feel like the apocalypse. Mm. The apocalypse feels like the apocalypse when I didn't get enough sleep and I haven't eaten enough and, you know, somebody moved my shoe. Like, those are the moments when you're going to see me fall apart a little, right? Like, that's when I'm going to be like, oh, my God, this shoe is gone. I can't find the shoe. And someone has to be like, hey, did you have dinner? And I'm like, no. And then I just need to eat, right? So, like, the things that our bodies actually experience of, of something being wrong and something being dramatically long-term wrong, like, our bodies just don't align with the timeline mm, of devastation. Yeah. And so there were all of these moments being up there that were, were profound, not for their sadness, although certainly that was present at times, but for the absolute unreal beauty and joy of being with other people in this experience that is so vast and so incomprehensibly big that the only way to really feel into it is to lean into the fact that we are this small group experiencing something magical. I think we actually experience something very similar in Star Cruiser. There is something about being in something very big, in a very big world, and feeling our smallness that lets us actually feel our interconnectedness um, in a way that it doesn't sort of get diffuse at the edges. And so that was one of the big things that the trip did for me, was really recontextualize not the fact that the world is being, uh, you know, attacked all the time by human behavior. That's absolutely a fact. And at the same time, what that does for us is create these, these spaces uh, for profound connection. 
And so what Tea Party at the end of the world tries to do is not to, to emulate the Arctic. That was so clear to me immediately is that I can't recreate this for people. It is, it is impossible. It would be disingenuous. It would only ever pay lip, lip service to something. So if I really want to get at the heart of what this experience is and what it's like to be at an end of the world, then the thing to do is to focus on those key emotions. What is it actually like to be together? Naming, talking about, feeling our way through, laughing, sometimes crying our way through, our experience of processing an end and that ends and beginnings come right at the heels of each other. And so there's all of this complexity around what it means to hold everything, all of time, all of our personal time, our personal grief, at the same time that we are holding this sort of societal experience of, of grief and love and beauty and laughter. And there's there's a lot of gallows humor in the piece because there's been gallows humor in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, there's, you know, there are many, many threads in the piece right now. And one of the big ones is just that my my dad passed away a few years ago and I've never thought to make a piece about it. I don't think this piece is about that, but it comes into play in a way that I never expected. It's some of my favorite writing in the piece is around that experience of uh, of processing the scale of losing my fa- losing my father and also the scale of feeling different kinds of grief in the world. And my dad died shortly before, like weeks before the 2020, uh, 2016 election. Mm. So I am very familiar with like the personal grief and societal grief just butting heads uh, right at the same time. But those kinds of scales, that kind of scale of like this deep thing is happening inside of me and this big thing is happening outside of me are very present within the piece. You've, you structure it as you, you mentioned in, in the, the the write up for the piece as it's being marketed to people, which can you know it's always a kind of a weird thing to think about marketing art to people. But you bring up parlor games and the fact that you know this is you know when the apocalypse comes, you will not be alone. I'm wondering how, how you know you're approaching these kind of really dark things and trying to give some experiential part of it. But I guess the question is what, what experience are you trying to evoke? I think, I think in what you've said, I can, I can tell what the answer is going to be, but I, I want to kind of like dial in on that because you're not trying to evoke the sense of the scale of being at the Arctic, but you are encapsulating these the personal grief, the societal grief, trying to bring that in, in and hold the piece, but also in experiential, we hand over part of this to the audience. So what surfaces are, are, are they going to be enmeshed in? That's a great question. Yeah, they are. I think part of the reason that performing and writing this piece scares me as all good work scares me, um, at least work that I hope is good, that definitely strives to be good. Uh, is is that it cannot possibly be done without them. There is no peace without people. And so while there is a lot of world building in this experience and that a lot of that world building comes in in the kind of world that we create uh, as ourselves, as you know, maximum 15 people at a time in this piece, uh, you come in and you play parlor games. I'm a game designer. And uh, so in trying to figure out like, what is, what is grief game? Um, how do these things play together? There's a couple of things that, that I've been playing around with for years in sort of in preparation for, without knowing I was making this piece, preparing to make this piece. Um, and one of them is really just this, this deep belief that I hold that 
even though it often doesn't seem like grief and play belong together, they absolutely must. We don't have a choice anymore. Play is what lets us be creative and move through the world and connect to others and have experiences that change us and transform us in ways that we need to transform as human beings in order to, to be the kinds of kinds of people, the kind of species that that gets to be here and gets to enjoy this. And so it has to be done. And at the same time, we're grieving and grief is so antithetical to play, but the truth is it doesn't matter anymore. We've lost the luxury of saying those things can be separate. We have to grieve at the same time that we have to play. Um, and so what this piece does, I think, and I hope, is to bring these things into conversation where we are playing these parlor games. We are playing things that are in some ways simple and familiar to us, but they have all been modded and changed. Um, and so they all take us on a journey. And these, these parlor games that we play are gonna be different every time. So the rules are quite simple and we play different versions of them over the course of the piece. There are probably five or six games and a bunch of different forms of interactivity in the piece, um, including little moments of the fact that we're, we're at this tea party. Again, your host is a little inept and so, people have to find ways just to pass the teapot to each other. And so what we've seen in all these playtests is we, we've now designed around that, that little factor because those moments of them navigating something small and figuring it out and getting to do that numerous times throughout the piece, they develop this rhythm. Uh, and then they feel really connected to the person next to them. And so it becomes this ceremony that my character is no longer hosting, but we are just being there together. There is no one host for the piece it takes every single person to to pass the teapot to pour for these two people and then pass the thing along and so there's this really beautiful there's these beautiful quiet modes of interactivity in the piece in addition to some of these parlor games that that the host has uh designed because it's the right way to run a tea party so of course we're gonna play parlor games it's not my fault i'm weird and things get weird i i like this idea of you know, you found the way they're passing the teapot became part of sort of the, the ritual design of this piece. And it, that made me think about, in, in much of the way that the evocation of parlor games makes me think of folk games, makes me think of the things that sort of emerge seemingly out of the ether on the playground and, and how these are both spoken and unspoken ways that we we communicate and navigate with each other. And like the, some of the earliest ways of figuring out how a society can work are like kids on the playground learning how to inventing hot lava monsters seemingly out of nothing more than the shape of a jungle gym. And yet every child knows hot lava monsters. Every child knows the floor is lava. It just seems to spontaneously appear out of, out of nothing. No one has to introduce this concept and and as if by magic, um, you know, the those those tools exist so that the, the, the kids can self-organize and play almost in a way like as if by magic it seems like our society seems to like self-organize, even though there's lots and lots of rules and structures. Um by the way, folks, this is one of those things that is not a question, it's just one of those observations. But like that you were that you're getting into that, that that you observe the behavior of the guests and then saw that as a as a break point into getting into the larger themes maybe you could talk a bit about what you learn in playtesting so much because you've you have tested this a, a fair number of times and i know 
I know a lot of creators who, you know, they'll stick to a four week theatrical rehearsal setup. And like, that's how they build their piece. Like it, it, maybe it's because they're in an institution. That's all the time they have. Or maybe it's because that's what's been inculcated in them over decades of, of being theater people. Yeah. There's both a theme in the piece and a theme in my life of what it takes to do hard things. Mm. And for me, playtesting is a very hard thing. I have some strong perfectionistic qualities. And so I, I really, really benefit from sending myself an audience, a time and a date to have to make decisions by so that I can't get too in the weeds about what the perfect way to say this thing is um, mm. because of exactly what you were saying before and what makes immersive and interactive work so magical, which is that the audience is essential to it. To me, not doing play tests and launching an interactive piece would be like putting on, I don't know, it's a little John Cagey, but like putting on a play and just not casting the actors. Like they just are essential. And so I feel like it would be wildly reckless of me in so many ways. Like, first off, the work would be bad. I wouldn't learn enough. Um, I would throw the baby out with the bathwater. I can't be trusted. Like I cannot be trusted to make a piece that is interactive on my own. I am my own worst enemy. Um, So the feedback from other people is absolutely essential. And I think with playtests, there's what it's always, I'm learning what I don't know. I go in with a ton of assumptions. I'm wrong every time. Or not, maybe I'm maybe I'm not wrong about anything. It doesn't change the fact those things have to get fixed. Um, but my director, uh, Joe Ahmed, who's an incredible director here in Philadelphia, was extremely validated by our last playtest because the first three things out of people's mouths were the three things that my director had been pushing me to include in the piece. And that I had felt like, oh no, it's too soon, it's too much, it's too obvious, like we couldn't possibly do that. And it just needed clarity. Uh, on all three fronts. And so having playtesters just be able to name, I don't understand this thing is uh, is incredible and wildly helpful. The moment where someone says they don't get it though, that's also kind of, that's got to hit a little bit, particularly if you're, you know, pulling up some personal stuff. Like what, how do you navigate that level of, of communicative feedback? Uh, because you're, you're, you know, you're putting your, you're pulling up things you never thought you were going to pull up. You're putting your heart on the line in so many ways. And someone might just go like, I don't really understand why that was happening just then. And, and, and yet you do, you, you touch that fire. That's a great question. I think, I think the most honest answer is that I feel an unbelievable gratitude to those people because it takes actual bravery to say that people don't understand something especially personal things. And so in those moments, I'm like, oh, thank God. Thank God you're here because you're not alone. You are. There's no way in the world that you are the only person that is feeling this and experiencing this. And now I can fix it. What a gift. Mm. The thing that I worry about more is people not sharing those things. Um, I worry about them choosing to be polite or feeling like, oh, I could never make changes in two weeks before opening. So I won't say anything about it. And those are the things that scare me, the people who who there is not yet an established layer of trust where they know how much I want this to reach people. Um, and so those, yeah, those are the things that I, I crave the most are the people who are radically candid. That's good. Like I, I often feel like it's such a test. Like, like if I'll get dropped into a situation, I mean, I've, go back to like school days i've i've always given you know really not blunt like but like honest criticism like i try as much as possible to like see what the person's trying to lay down 
And if something's not getting clear or if they seem to be missing the mark to like call that and just be like, and be able to say this thing you're doing right here, this isn't getting across. Like I can see that you're reaching for this and like, you're not hitting the note, you know, like this, this phrase isn't getting through. Right. And, and I feel like more often than not creators want that. And whenever I find someone who just like doesn't want to take the notes, doesn't want to hear the notes, I'm so floored by it because this, this like, I don't know, like it's like they're holding so tight onto what they think the vision is that they don't know that the vision isn't coming across. Right. And like, they can't, so why can't you just see things the way I see things? Right. You know, which is this very, I have that impulse too. Right. It's it's like the most immature part of me is like, Oh, why can't you just see it the way I see it? You know, it's like, because they can't, because they're not me, you know, and like the pathway is either fix what I'm doing or make everybody me, which is why I've created this device. No, uh, (laughs) (laughs) hitting the button now. No, but like, so it's, it's, and I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's just different personality types or, or different ways that people have been trained. Like this has come up a lot lately and we've been talking a bit about teaching folks and like it's, it's come up, you know, uh, you know, I've heard of schools where they're not even allowing people to the students to critique each other anymore because it's, it's too stressful, painful, or they're using it in ways to just cut each other down emotionally. And I just think of if, if, if I wasn't in a, a critical, you know, hot box back when I was in school and be able to hear those things and absorb those things, even the stuff that was, I've been thinking about this one a lot later. There's someone who just like, they made me feel like I didn't belong in the class, but I knew that I had worked my way through and I just, and I knew that I was like at an, at a low point in my abilities and that, that vibe coming off of them. That was like, what is this guy? Why is this guy here? Only spurred me on to like, get it together and, 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 and turn it around because I just knew I wasn't connecting. And so I had to do something to, to, to connect. That's spoken like a true experience goer, right? Someone with like expertise and experience design is like, I have the agency to turn this around. And I think that's one of the things that Mm -hmm. makes that like, I take very seriously about my job as both a performer and a facilitator and a writer, a designer, a creator, like a maker of interactive experiences is that I want to hold people. I want to hold them so that they, they don't feel like they don't belong. Uh, and if they do feel that way, then we're still meeting them where they're at in the piece. And that it's always, always, always my job to meet them where they're at. And that I can't come into a piece expecting that people are going to know anything or feel a certain way. And so there's there's this kind of real fear and freedom in being able to read a room, especially, mm-hmm. I think, doing solo work is that there's just like this attunement to how the individuals are in this piece. What are they saying on their first moments of interactivity? Who's speaking? Who's not speaking? There's all this incredible beautiful nuance that I feel as a performer getting to to key into those things or feeling like there's this moment coming up who might be the person to start this moment who's who's got the vibe that doesn't totally make sense for it but I've got a feeling Uh, and then being able to gut check those things and so that that feels really active for me in the space of both playtesting and and running an experience like this is that they are delicate like we are delicate little creatures. Connection is really delicate. And when, especially in something like Tea Party at the end of the world, where I'm asking people to think about death, um, I think it, I have a responsibility to 
make that as safe a space as possible with onboarding experiences, with offboarding, with uh, with safety procedures in the piece, like finding ways to do that both in and out of world. Like there's all of these things that that go into making pe- making this a place where people can connect. And if it's not a place that they can connect, I probably haven't done my job right. And I think one of the really scary things, this is a really, this feels like a very vulnerable thing to share um, for sort of the opposite. No, it just is a vulnerable thing to share, which is that so far Tea Party at the End of the World has worked. It's worked for months. I'm still over here like tweaking and fine tuning and writing and rewriting and finding little ways to to improve this thing. And it's not up to my standards yet. And there are all of these little bits of perfectionism, but also a striving for excellence that come into play that are always a little bit in tension with each other. But the piece has worked since the Portland playtests. And so when I've been asking people, what are you craving? What should change? The things that they're confused about, the things that they're craving have been so small in ways that it has been very, very challenging for me to actually sit with that feedback. Mm. And so part of me has, is questioning, of course, you know, have I created a safe space where they can give feedback? But it's happening time and time again. I'm trying a bunch of different things. I'm bringing people I trust. I'm talking to them about this and the feedback is the same. And so then I think the really hard thing for me to do is really trust them, trust my playtesters in the way that I'm asking them to trust me. And if they tell me it's working, if I see it, then it's happening. And I think I'm so used to things being an absolute hot mess until the end. Or I keep having these expectations that I'll have to tear this piece apart in order to make the final changes that will make it good again. And that's gonna be hellacious. And and it keeps not happening. It keeps being a more spacious process. And my brain keeps rebelling. And my director keeps doing an incredible job of reminding me that part of the goal for making this piece was not just product spaciousness, creating a space for us to really lean into to our experience in a way that we don't always get to do within the piece and that we all get to do that within the piece. The goal was to do that in the process as well. And that's been the really, really hard thing for me that I think mirrors one of the hard things we do in the piece is just trust that this is the time and the place to breathe into a hard thing. You sound like you're, you're anticipating and almost wanting that, final dress rehearsal disaster so that you can you can see what's broken as clearly as possible right which until i just said that i didn't realize that's why everyone wants the final like like the the myth of like a final dress being bad means good opening night right like there's a truth to it in that you see it all break and by seeing the break you're like oh it broke because this other thing, like you just said, there was this sense, but then there's also sometimes when you get habituated to that and it's like, Oh no, the, the disaster already happened. Like, this is just working now. You're going to be fine. You know, like you can, you can just let it breathe. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The idea that this is the moment to let it breathe as opposed to when it's up on its feet already is mind blowing to me. It's, I think you put it really beautifully. Like I just, I want the clarity of what's broken. And it's so hard to believe that it's not broken, that it's Mm. just, it can be improved, but it's not broken. And I think we experience that as people too. Like I, at least I'll speak for myself. Sometimes as a person, I want to know the ways in which I'm broken so I can fix myself uh, and, and be better, do better, go faster, be stronger. And, and that's not the way humans work. I'm not broken. None of us are broken. 
and we can still grow and change. And I think that's also every, every time I'm talking about my life or the piece, my director also is imme- immediately like, so that's your life or the piece. That's your life or the piece. That's your life or the piece. Cause it's always both, uh, you know, if you're doing artistic work, you know, everything in the world is the piece, but all of these, all of these moments that are, that are part of the process where it is so hard to contend with the fact that everything is wrong and nothing is wrong at the same time are, are parts of the piece as well. And everything is joyful and beautiful. And it is so hard to hold joy and beauty uh, in our lives, especially when we're holding grief in the other hand, it's complex and it's challenging for a reason. And so the fact that I am feeling that complexity in process uh, and trying all these new things around, you know, having this character and this character, having experiences that I, Jessica, have had very directly, is all new. It's all new for me. And so there's this layer of vulnerability where uh, I keep wanting to rely on the same tools that I've, I've used before around like really one-to-one sort of like translations of complex material into game. And, and grief is so many colors that it's a totally different shape that the play in this piece takes. Um, and there is play. I find myself talking about the piece in really serious terms, but there is play. There's real play in this piece. Like this piece I think is, I hope is a joy to go through um, as well as, as well as, a, um, I don't know, I, a dark communal beauty. I don't know. I don't have the right words for it exactly, but. Well, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks back. You, you shared part of the piece with me and, and I, anyway, we'll get to that part, but like, um, trying to, you, you've been aiming to some degree of like skating for finding the way to hold the, these, these heavy pieces lightly. And is, is, do you know why you're aiming for that? particular kind of tone right because i'm also getting you picking up again wine tasting like there's there's this sense of like the piece is becoming what i like to call the thing itself when the art sort of stops being you know the this this object that is separated from the themes that it's trying to be and just becomes the themes that it is no more trying it just exists right and and yeah, like, why, why, why holding the the heavy lightly? What a yeah, what a great question. I feel like for this being such a core amount of the work that I do, I don't think I've ever been asked that question that directly. Um, That's because I'm kind of dumb and I just ask blunt. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's a very clear question. Uh, I think. I think a big part of it is that I take myself so seriously. I have taken myself so seriously for my entire life. When I was little, you know, kids are funny. Kids say funny things. And I used to say funny things and my parents would laugh and I would start crying and I would say, Mm. stop laughing at me. Um, I'm serious at you. And that would make them laugh harder. And so I just always had this, this belief that the world is a serious place. And as I've grown into my adulthood, I've gotten so much more playful, so much more mischievous. And so that often when I talk about work, like I'm so me, like I'm so serious about things. And when I'm in performance, when I'm making work, when I'm creating something, it has this chance to kind of breathe into something else and and be the kind of, it opens up into the kind of world and I opened up into the kind of person and creator that that I want to be, that I think the world deserves and, and needs more of. Um, and I think when we get serious about things, we get blinders on. 
and the world looks one way, feels one way, is one way, and we can really fall into this state of certainty where nothing can change. It just is what it is, right? There's a sort of downward spiral that we can hit if we get too serious about things. And when we play, there is instead this sense of expansion. Anything is possible. And that feels good when we're in a game mode, when we're in a mode of like, oh, there's a little bit of structure to this world. I get to play and experience things differently. I get to try things out. Risk feels better. The uncertain feels like it holds possibility rather than it holds death and destruction uh, or misery and despair. And so the future becomes brighter. And if we can't imagine bright futures and brighter ways of being and ways to transform as people, and if we don't get to practice those things in community, through laughter, with these experiences that are sticky enough to be bridges between this experience that we're having in this controlled world, this immersive and interactive experience into the rest of our lives. If we can't do that, if we can't bridge that gap, then how do we grow? How do we make change in the world? And so for me, it is, it sounds, it's, it is super lofty, but it is the philosophy that I live by is that play is the way that we change, right? Like I'm certainly not alone in that, but but if we can't play, then the only way we change is more downward spiral. And we get we have too much of that. And I think that is especially true when it comes to climate change, uh, because it is so serious. There are some things that it gets really difficult to be, to feel playful about, partially because there are all these social taboos. Like you couldn't joke about climate change. We are doing this. We feel guilt. And it's really hard to be playful when you feel guilty. And it's really hard to do anything differently when we feel guilty. So we build this little barrier and become isolated and different and we can't connect anymore to anybody. And so I think what play is doing in this piece is saying like, what if we poke a hole in that membrane? What if we don't isolate ourselves in the moments where we feel grief, in the moments where we don't feel grief and we feel guilty for feeling grief or we feel guilty for any number of things. And so it's taking these emotions that are so challenging that we are sometimes we don't even know they're there. And so how could we name them or share them with others? They, they, they live in the shadows. And so I think if we take the things that live in the shadows and shine some light on it in a way, they don't become as scary. Right? They stop being so scary. And if we have someone's hand to hold while we're doing it, oh my God, then we can do anything, right? Because if we have some social support or we have someone to laugh with at the shadows, then you just kick fear in the teeth. And so I think that is, that is the hope for this work. Um, that if we can hold serious things lightly, then we can we can really do something about them, um, change our minds, change the way we feel in, in sometimes really subtle ways that sort of weave through our lives. So I'm not talking about like everybody leaves this piece and we solve recycling. Right. It's not like that. Um, it's more like it changes who we are, how we show up sort of on a fundamental cellular level. Again, this is sounding so lofty. It's subtle. It's also subtle, but like, that's us. That's us all the time. It's just these subtle moments that add up. And so I want to be adding moments to our lives, uh, to my own life, to the lives of the people around me that, that encourage us to be playful and change and transform and be mutable so that we don't get stuck and sad and down. That's a, that's a lovely lovely place for us to land this on so like I, I we could we'll probably talk some more off mic and like we're, i'll regret it like oh we should have had that on too but i think i think it's a takeaway for everybody and that's what i want i want everyone to take that that away jessica thank you so much for being on the show this week and i i wish i could portal out uh to to philly and and catch it or you know maybe you'll you'll tour this piece a bit and so at some point i'll, I'll finally get I would a, love to. a chance to experience it thanks now thanks all
once again, I want to thank Jessica for being our guest on the show this week. I always enjoy talking with Jessica, and I'm glad we got to perform some of that for those conversations for all of you. Um, that is it for this week. Uh, things are progressing ahead. Uh, spooky season's right around the corner. Uh, oh my goodness, I've got to get the Spooky Season Spectacular newsletter together. Um, just today, uh, when I'm recording this, I-, I wasn't down there, but the press preview for Not Scary Farm's 50th anniversary popped off. Uh, that'll definitely make it into next week's Everything Immersive this week. Uh, and uh, the thing that I think I'm, I'm most excited about is they're making a maze uh, based on the goring 20s interaction scare zone they've been doing, which has had this like roaring 20s theme, kind of immersive light for the past couple of years. They're doing a whole like prohibition era themed maze that's like somehow involving like ringing a doorbell and getting a door that doesn't open to open and all this sort of stuff. At least that's what I read up on and what it was described uh, in the article, the orange County register. We'll see, we'll see if it is actually all that and, and not just, you know, Oh, Hey, look, the entrance to the maze is over here. Uh, so uh, a little excited about what's being promised. Uh, let's see what's actually delivered. Uh, but 50 years, 50 years Knotts has been doing this uh, defined Defined an entire field by uh, by starting the scary farm. So uh, congratulations to you, Knots, and thank goodness you're older than me. Um, <laughs> the scary farm is older than me, and Knots definitely. Oh boy, Whew, yeah, that'd be that'd be. Good. Um, fun fact: um, Knots was the second theme park I ever went to because I was born in Orange County, uh, and and some poor woman had a heart attack on Montezuma's Revenge, which is the the single loop-de-loop coaster uh, when I was there. And I was like five or something. And then I like never wanted to go on a roller coaster. I didn't go on a roller coaster in, uh, until college. And I loved them. Now, I think my body's too old and falling apart. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe I'm back to not being on roller coasters anymore. Nah. I was talking with uh, some folks last week. I think we're going to hit up, uh, I think we're going to hit up some coasters uh, before, maybe, maybe, maybe in the spring. Maybe not before the year is through. I don't know. We'll see. It can happen. Coasters. Their thing. Um, golly gee, lookers. Uh, in EI this week, uh, you'll see uh, we, we pulled the news note about, uh, about Immersive Gatsby uh, announcing that it's closing in New York. Uh, they're going to keep the venue open and do some parties, but it looks like the production is, is closing up shop. Uh, not too many details in the stories that uh, were, were out in Playbill and whatnot. I think there was a little confusion. Uh, Playbill was saying that it may reopen at another, at another venue, but I'm uh, having read the statement, I'm pretty sure what the statement was saying was that they were going to be doing other things at the venue they're at already. Anyway, uh, I'm sure there'll, there'll be some disambiguation soon enough guess I, I could write them and ask them, but uh, I, 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 I think it's mostly Playbill just getting it wrong. It seemed pretty clear to me that they're just, they're going to be doing some parties in the space at the hotel that they were operating out of. Um, what does that say about the current state of things? Um, well, uh, it says that some things aren't working and it also reminds us that New York is an incredibly different, difficult market 
the immersive Gatsby was in London forever. Uh, and then they moved it to New York and lo and behold, uh, just just shy of 80 or maybe just hitting 80 performances when you count the uh, previews uh, is, is where they are taking this thing to. Uh, also noting uh, a little bit of uh, good news to go uh, <laughs> on a side of bad news. Uh, you know, last week, EI this week had the note that uh, Future Proof, uh, also in New York, is also closing up shop future proof of course being the home of doors of divergence uh their paradox cycle of uh, escape game uh and uh the art of killing it uh at least doors of divergence has managed to extend their run uh extend their action to the beginning of october so what was originally going to be closing at the end of this month is now got till the end of september so if you have not checked it out yet uh they've got the two rooms uh that are part of uh, the trilogy of the paradox cycle they haven't gotten to opening the third room yet uh but everyone says these are absolutely well everyone says oh, these are absolutely incredible uh, and well worth seeing. So if you're in the area and you want to check it out, here's your chance to get to it before they go away. There's been a lot of that this year. Of course, Star Cruiser is closing at the end of next month. Uh, a bunch of the team has been out. Uh, Ed and Patrick and Leah were all on the same cruise uh, in, in different in different uh, groups. Uh, they were out there along with some other uh, creators in from New York. Uh, who were, were were running around the starship just this last uh, Star Cruiser, just this uh, last voyage that just uh, came in a day or two ago, and uh, someone else we know, uh, not me. Uh, I'm not going back. I wish. Oh, I wish. Um, uh, someone else we know is is set to go uh, in about a week's time, but I don't want to jinx anything for anybody. So uh, very very excited, and that also means probably going to get the crew together to like swap stories. So sorry, not sorry. There's there's more Star Cruiser uh, content coming your way uh, as uh, as that show comes to wrap up, and I think some of that's going to be about us uh, as a group, kind of talking about these closures. Uh, and all that's going on. I am, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready for a very, very busy fall. So, uh, that's me. I literally droned on way longer than I thought I was going to. And so I'm going to now bid you adieu and I hope you have an excellent weekend and, uh, you know, we'll do this all again next weekend. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Shivano Lachlan for voicing our intro. This is all my fault. Uh, I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show.